Radio Krikon. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. Thanks for joining me today as we reach the third episode of series four, The Tailor's Dummy. When a famous fashion designer flings himself off a high window ledge to his death, it appears that he was depressed by a very bad review. It's down to Jonathan and Carla to figure out what really happened though, and spoiler alert, they do. At this point in the introduction, I normally let you know that it's a good idea to watch the episode before listening to the pod. However, on this occasion, I've thought about it and decided that, yeah, we'll do it again. It's a good idea to watch the episode before listening to the pod. Otherwise, you won't be able to remember or visualise anything being referred to, and everyone will laugh at you for being the tit that you are. And you'll be left with the following statement ringing round your ears. No Greek, you freak, baby. The Taylor's Dummy aired on March the 15th, 2003. Here he comes, the Aussie man we all know and love, and he's going to say the words, episode synopsis. Episode synopsis. We open with a train coming in to the station. 17-year-old Carrie, an art student and keen ornithologist, i.e. birdwatcher, is being met by her aunt and uncle, Louise and Claude Bergman, who are brother and sister. In the car home, Claude looks at some of Carrie's artwork and they discuss Marco, Claude and Louise's father, and Carrie's grandfather, who is a famous fashion designer in his very late 70s. A mile or so from the house, Louise skids to a halt having nearly hit a bird or something on the road and they get out to check whether it's okay. However, there's no sign of it. They've stopped in sight of the house and are shocked to see that elderly Marco is climbing out of his upstairs bedroom window. Despite their yells, the perturbed old man leaps to his death from the windowsill to the patio below. They race to the house and arrive to find that yes, he's definitely dead. Upstairs, the windows open and a newspaper is open at a page on which a columnist called Donna Henry has slagged off Marco's most recent collections. Back outside, Carrie hears a strange noise from a small hedge directly below the window, although at this point we don't see what it is. Elsewhere, shit magician Kenny Starkus is performing on a London street to a sceptical crowd. His teleportation trick is really rubbish and involves a completely different man stepping out of the second teleportation pod into which Kenny supposedly transmigrated. As he moves on to his next trick, the human egg slicer, we see two dodgy looking men watching on from the crowd with keen interest. In a restaurant, Brendan and Carla are doing an interview with Donna Henry, talking about their working and personal lives together. He uses a high-tech Panasonic mini-portable DVD player to show Donna clips of a Japanese game show that they are going to adapt for UK television, in which contestants are hooked up to a lie detector and asked intimate questions. Alarms blare when they're exposed as fibbers. The conversation is interrupted by the barging-in Claude Bergman, and he accuses Donna of causing his father's death with her spiteful and negative column. Donna says that if Marco was too weak to accept honest criticism, then that really isn't her problem, and then threatens to sue for defamation. 
Back on the street and with the assistant from the human egg trick being carted off by paramedics, the two dodgy men approach Kenny and flatter him with backhanded compliments about his act. Meanwhile, Jonathan's at the theatre and on the phone to Carla, mentioning that not only is Adam off sick for a while due to a sword-swallowing trick gone wrong, but several of their showgirls have recently quit. He stops the call when he sees and then overhears another showgirl arranging to meet someone in a warehouse. That evening, Donna Henry is going through her evening routine at her house, which involves putting on a face pack in front of a mirror, and this process is watched by someone through a window. Not a peeping Tom, but Claude Bergman. Carla has persuaded Jonathan to take part in a photo shoot to promote her new true crime show, in which he will continue to appear as a consultant. They have a barney about the moronic nature of what's being asked of him, and Brendan comes in to find out what's going on. He has the pair of them literally kiss and make up, which leads to the odd scenario of Carla passionately kissing Jonathan right in front of him. Later that night, Donna arrives at a posh hotel for which she has previously given a bad review. The manager explains that several improvements have been made since then, and shows her to a fancy room, where she eats room service, does some writing, and then begins her evening routine with the face pack at the bathroom mirror. Unfortunately, and I don't know about you, but I find it irritating when this happens, a gun-wielding interloper lets themselves into the room and accosts her, telling her in a disgusted voice that she's a smug and abusive hag and an appalling bitch. I am paraphrasing, but it was something like that, and he then makes her rip up a copy of one of her columns and literally eat the paper. There's a brief moment where she glances into the mirror and the intruder lifts his mask to rub his nose and she sees that it's Claude. Moments later, the hotel manager comes in saying there's been reports of a dodgy looking person creeping about. Claude hides in the shower and Donna, aware that he has a gun, tells the manager that everything is fine. When he leaves, Claude comes back out of the shower and then the manager springs in and accosts him. Donna lifts up the mask to reveal a black guy underneath, not Claude. She's astonished and the guy breaks free from the manager and runs off. At the TV studio the next day, Donna has turned up to the set of the new lying TV show to tell Carla and Brendan about the incident. Carla goes to the theatre where Jonathan is dealing with the mass showgirl resignation. She apologises for kissing him with her tongue yesterday and he points out that today she's wearing a very low-cut top and that isn't helping matters vis-a-vis -vis their collective hormones. They go to the hotel and head to the room where a cleaner is at work. Carla pretends to be the occupant and heads to the bathroom, slipping Jonathan in too. They look around and turn on the shower to cover the noise, but the cleaner needs to come back inside to collect her can of polish. Jonathan and Carla hide in the shower in the meantime, getting wet together, which leads to another fairly intimate moment. Jonathan says there's no way anyone could have got in or out without being seen. The plot thickens. That night at the warehouse, the showgirl turns up as we saw being arranged earlier. Jonathan slyly watches on as she's welcomed inside by Kenny Starkus. The two dodgy men are there as well and they run through a trick with her which leads to her being nailed inside a crate which is then loaded into a truck which is driven away, presumably so she can then be a sex slave or something similar, and the men give Kenny a wad of cash as a reward. 
Jonathan accosts him straight away and demands that he puts a stop to the whole sordid enterprise, somehow. Carla selects another revealing top from her wardrobe for a trip to the Bergman household. She intends on straight up asking Claude how the hotel bathroom trick was done. However, he denies all involvement and heads straight off to work. Inside, Louise is happy to slag off Donna. She tells Carla more about her father and where she and Claude ranked within his opinions. Claude had the skill and complexity, she merely had her pretty good looks. Marco had been housebound in recent years and Carla mentions having read somewhere that he'd been afraid of flying, but Louise says this was not the case. Jonathan and Carrie chat about Marco's love of the Marx Brothers and their films and she sceptically asks him to do a trick with some cards. He does and while she initially pretends to not be amazed, it turns out that she actually is and she mournfully talks about how sad it was that Marco was so upset just before suicide that he threw his parrot ahead of him out of the window in its cage. We then see that this is what she heard from the bushes below the window. Up in Marco's bedroom, Carrie confirms that the light was not on when Marco jumped and that Louise switched it on when they got back that night. In a wardrobe with scratches round its lock, Jonathan finds all of Marco's socks are pinned together in pairs and something is then triggered in his head when Carrie mentions that Marco had evidently been in a state of great depression. After Carla and Jonathan go, Carrie goes into her room and prepares to inject something into her arm. Jonathan responds to a text message from someone asking him to meet them at the theatre at 8pm. Carla goes with him and while chatting in an alleyway mentions the face pack that Donna was wearing in front of the mirror. Jonathan was unaware of that until this point and it immediately leads him to see how the trick was done, mentioning that it involved an idea borrowed from Groucho Marx. Moments later, Carla's taken at knife point by one of the dodgy blokes from earlier, and the other one has Kenny in his grasp nearby. Jonathan and Carla are taken into the theatre and locked in a cage hanging above spikes on the stage. They're going to be stuck there together overnight until the janitor arrives in the morning, and things get worse when the sprinklers go on and soak the pair of them. With nothing better to do, Jonathan reveals the solution to the bathroom trick. The hotel were in on it all and they installed a mirror in her room that could slide sideways into the wall. In the room next door, which was a symmetrical layout, Claude and Louise dressed up in masks to replicate Donna Henry and the gun-wielding black guy. At the crucial moment, the mirror was slid back so that Donna was looking not at her reflection, but at Louise and Claude. It was then slid back into place moments later, an idea taken from a Groucho Marx film where one brother plays the reflection of another. The hotel manager only pretended to apprehend the intruder and was part of the whole ploy. The next day, Carl and Jonathan watch a video of Marco's last public appearance as she looks for the reference in a book about his supposed fear of flying. She finds it and it describes how he was trapped in a burning aircraft during the war. Meanwhile, Donna and Claude unexpectedly meet for lunch and she explains why she has to write her columns in the way she does. Somehow, this even more unexpectedly leads to the pair of them sleeping together. At the Bergman house, Carrie is emptying the bin when she notices something in there. For the second time this episode, we don't yet see what she's spotted. 
Carl and Jonathan head to the studio for the Japanese TV show, and Jonathan persuades her to link herself up to the lie detector equipment. It goes haywire when she seemingly lies that she does indeed have a solid marriage based on a deep and reciprocal love with Brendan. A mention of Pearl Harbor leads Jonathan to make the connections between various things that point towards FDR Roosevelt, and he realises that it is in fact a murder they're looking at here, not suicide by Marco. They're summoned back to the Bergman house where Louise has confiscated Carrie's medication. As Jonathan and Carla approach, they see Carrie edging out onto the window ledge just like Marco did. She's about to kill herself, but Jonathan and Carla intervene. It turns out that Marco was blind for the last few years of his life, which the family had kept secret, much in the manner of how FDR Roosevelt was paralysed but persuaded people that he could actually still walk. The family business tried to carry on with Claude designing all the clothes, but he was not as good as his dad, and this meant the collection started getting criticism. Marco didn't have a fear of flying because of the burning aircraft, but a fear of fire. Louise rigged up a tape with sound effects of a raging inferno and her own shouted instructions to jump from the window, and timed it to start playing when they were on the route back from the train station. Marco was woken up by the sounds and jumped out of the window thinking the house was on fire and it was his only route to safety. He also attempted to save his beloved parrot's life in the process. Louise threw the sound effect tape into the bin and Carrie later discovered it, listened to it and this made her realise what had really happened. Louise claims to have done it for the family, with Marco now blind, useless and having been an arrogant pain in the arse for years she'd reached the end of her tether and decided that he had to go. We end in the studio where Carla has just presented the first episode of Guilty Secrets. Brendan confides in Jonathan that the whole thing is fixed and that the polygraph reveals a lie 60% of the time regardless of what people actually say. Donna Henry then arrives for a follow-up interview with Brendan for the profile piece she's writing and, out of badness, Jonathan decides to tell her about how the show is fixed. As Mark Twain once said, a man who always tells the truth doesn't have to remember what he said. Episode Analysis Whilst there are definitely some glaring unlikelihoods around the solutions to the two key mysteries, this to me was another strong episode in terms of enjoyability. I've relished the Brendan Baxter moments to date and here again he was on top form, cutting off Carla when talking about the very equal nature of their relationship, distinguishing between the docudrama and the drama mentry, and having Jonathan and Carla shake hands after kissing. Whether he's oblivious to the continually increasing attraction between the two of them or actually somehow gets off on it all is a bit unclear, but it never fails to raise a laugh. Kenny Starkish returned in this episode having first appeared in Satan's Chimney, and this is also the last time that we will see him. Given his final scene was him being carted off at knife point by hoodlums, I think it's fair to say that he may well have been murdered. I thought the bloke who played his body double during that crappy trick near the start did actually look quite a lot like him. Hang tight for the next section if you want to know more about where that scene took place. Now, the bratty little boy who called him out was played by a young actor called Alex Pownall, 
and these days he is a personal trainer specialising in one-to-one -one parkour training. Check him out online if that's something that interests you. And whilst I don't know whether he's open to questions and interviews about his two-minute appearance on Jonathan Creek, I can't say for a fact that he doesn't love receiving messages about it. The solution to the first mystery of Marco defenestrating himself from the top floor has us believe that he thought the whole house was on fire. I think that the fact the sounds were all coming from speakers would surely have been noticeable, particularly when he was out on the ledge and the supposed presence of his family on the ground below was soundtracked by their voices still being inside. Very dubious. There was something of a long stretch in the idea of Jonathan getting to the truth by connecting all those seemingly random things, coming up with FDR Roosevelt and solving the mystery from there, and I thought that video of the book signing alone was pretty clear in showing him as blind. As for the sliding mirror in the bathroom trick, well, it's certainly one of the endearing and classic Creek images, and it is very clever in its conception, planning and execution, but come on, how on earth could it be implemented, really? Do hotels have hollow walls that would allow for that? Was the hotel so annoyed by a negative review that it would go along with it and incur the expense? Surely a bedroom being infiltrated by an armed intruder would only create more bad press. Jonathan certainly had his work cut out in this episode given he was also drawn into a kerfuffle with women being shipped off to god knows where and for god knows what exact reasons. I'm not sure leaving Kenny to deal with it all rather than going straight to the cops was a terrific idea, and given we never hear anything about the women again, I dread to think what actually happened to them. Maureen Lipman played Louise, Nicholas Jones was Claude, Victoria Charlotte was Carrie, Jill Baker portrayed Donna Henry and Geoffrey Seagal was Marco. Christine Jernan directed it, David Rennick wrote it, Verity Lambert produced it, Mel Nortcliffe was first assistant director, Aidan Turner was second assistant director, Guy de Glanville was third assistant director, whatever that person does, Richard Jupp was boom operator, Dave Chapman was visual effects designer, Rod Woodruff was stunt coordinator, Jackie O'Sullivan was the accounts assistant, and the one you're all wondering about, John Clark was the standby painter. The Celebration of Location Information Station You will no doubt recall back in episode 13, The Eyes of Tiresias, that suicidal businessman Andre Masson's country pile was identified as Hall Barn, on the Hall Barn estate near Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire. Well, it was again used in this episode as the Bergman family home. It was originally known as Brick House and is currently owned by the Lawson family. I know you've probably listened to episode 13 a good seven or eight times already, but for further information on Hall Barn, you can go back and do so yet again. Elsewhere in the episode, Kenny Starkus's terrible teleportation magic trick was shot just outside St Paul's Church in Covent Garden in central London. I always wonder how stuff gets filmed in such busy places without people stopping and gawking in the background, but they appear to have managed it somewhat here. Covent Garden markets can be seen on the right, and the outdoor seating area under the parasols is, these days at least, 
a French bakery called Maison La Durie. And finally, when Carla accuses Jonathan of being a pervert under the billboard, it's superimposed on a building on Monmouth Street just round the corner in Covent Garden. The scene takes place on Tower Street and the knife-wielding thug takes Carla down the Tower Court alleyway. And no, that is not a euphemism. Creek Connections At 36 minutes 41 seconds, we see that the billboard with a lady in a bra on it is supplied by a firm called Chapman Lambert. Lambert Chapman is the name of an accountancy firm who describe themselves as approachable and independent and are based in Braintree, Essex. Braintree was the childhood home of Paralympic swimmer Giles Long, who was a torchbearer during the 2012 Olympic torch relay, carrying it through Norwich Castle. Norwich Castle is one of the Norwich 12, 12 heritage sites in the city of Norwich, another of which is the Guild Hall, described as England's largest and most elaborate provincial medieval city hall. Its construction was completed in 1424, the same year as the Battle of Verneuil took place between an English army and a French-Scottish alliance in Normandy. Dr Norman Day is an Australian architect and writer who has taught at numerous universities including the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, which was also the setting for Alfred Hitchcock's 1949 film Under Capricorn. Under Capricorn's female lead was Ingrid Bergman. Claude, Louise and Marco Bergman were three of the main characters in The Tailor's Dummy. Do you, um, do you believe in fate? Or magic? Or coincidences? Because the only way those incredible connections make sense is due to one of those things. My money's on magic personally, but email getyourcreekon at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on the matter. Another Creek Connection next time. Relaxation time. Tranquil, dreamy serenity. It's important to switch off sometimes from the stresses and strains of modern life. So why not soothe your brain cells with some autonomous sensory meridian response? Whispered sounds and voices are proven by some kind of real or tenuous science to ease anxieties and tensions. Prepare to get all tingly as further Jonathan Creek, aka JC, information comes at you like the opposite of a runaway train. Louise Bergman has a fairly noticeable Yorkshire accent, whereas her brother Claude doesn't, and he sounds like he's from somewhere further south. 
slightly strange, wouldn't you think? Don't give Donna Henry what she wants, Claude. She's probably thriving on it. Victoria Charlotte jacked in acting in 2012 to become a therapist. Low self-esteem, trauma, depression. Those are just some of the reasons she might have done it. It's a shame she didn't decide to run a bed and breakfast instead, though she could, she could have called it Victoria's Chalet. You know, Chalet as in a type of cabin. A missed opportunity. The game show all about lying was called Guilty Secrets. There was a real TV show called Guilty Secrets that started in 2016. That was about modelling agencies, I think. I didn't watch it. I find modelling and fashion to be very shallow and pointless endeavours. It's a load of bollocks if you ask me, but each to their own, I suppose. But, but yeah, it's a load of shit. One of the dodgy foreign thugs is always eating an apple when we see him, even when he's abducting people at knife point. A bit weird, no? China accounts for over half the world's production of apples. That's not really pertinent to anything here, but I did think it was kind of interesting. It seems a bit of a stretch that Claude would spy on Donna Henry's evening routine once, and then just assume she does exactly the same thing at the same time every night. What if she decided to work late or something? Or maybe he actually watched her for 25 nights in a row and therefore could be certain of it. I suppose we'll never know, that's just the, the magic of drama, the magic of fiction, the magic of television. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Get Your Creek On, the 21st so far, with several more still to follow. There is a good likelihood that there will be no podcast for the final four or five episodes of Jonathan Creek due to the fact that they were pretty shit, but we'll cross that bridge further down the line. Next up will be Seer of the Sands, in which a dead paranormal investigator starts talking from beyond the grave. You can contact the show whenever you like by emailing getyourcreekon at gmail.com. On Twitter, the handle is at creekget, or you can head to the website, which is getyourcreekon.co.uk. Some of the location information for this show comes from a Twitter account called Creek Locations, which an allegedly very handsome person put together when slacking off from work during the pandemic. Uh, whilst it's not particularly active these days, it's still quite an interesting read, I think, if you like Jonathan Creek and the locations used within it at least, so why not check it out? That's us for today. Catch you next time for some more Get Your Creek On. I'm Toby. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Get Your Creek On. 